Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Well, would you look at that? We are one episode away from the big 100. How crazy is that, Dave? I was thinking about that just the other day when I was promoting the podcast for KZY and was just reflecting a little bit on, boy, it, it, it really is about to be 100 episodes for us of filling in, doing this podcast and, and here we are, and now we're just about at a milestone with it and, and just how fun it's been. And there have been times, too, along the journey where I've been like, man, what are we going to come up with for an episode topic here this time around? Or what haven't we mined for yet? Thankfully, there's still plenty out there that we haven't mined for. For as long as there's movies, there's going to be things to talk about movies. Maybe some ground that's familiar, but it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Uh, maybe now that we're going to hit 100, maybe they'll jack up our budget a little bit. Let's get a couple of mannequins. We'll dress them up like Rick and Nick, and then we can say they're in the studio. Maybe they'll show up. Maybe that's what the budget will be. Maybe it's a pay dispute, and they're not getting paid enough to come in from day one. You're really thinking no. with budget-related no. issues, let's try to get the co-hosts of the show in here. <laughs> Why not use the budget for something else, like being able to pay a fee for a movie star to appear on our podcast? Coffee and donuts. Man, popcorn, that'd be good for movie talking, wouldn't it? We are apparently thinking on very different terms here as far as what a budget would do for this show. <laughs> I was going to say snazzy team crew jackets. Wow. All right, welcome to Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, the Paul Bunyan Broadcasting Movie Podcast. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. It's a snowy morning. I'm coming in smelling like snowblower exhaust because uh, just to get out, Whoa. the plow would come by. And you know, the last one smelled skunky, but this one, the plow I've got now smells kind of sweet. It smells kind of nice. You know what? Want to come I over can, and huff my shirt? I No, thank you. <laughs> I can see now, though, why you are thinking so much about food with those budget things that, that you are coming up with, because you've been out working, toiling, clearing off your driveway so far this morning, so now you just want a little bit of a reward to fill your belly. Not too, but you know, you wake up and you're literally in the middle of a blizzard, and uh, your your day starts like that too. You don't slowly stagger out of bed, and sl- I mean, you hit the ground like Fred Flintstone. You got to do this and get this, get a little something in you quick, and then you got to plow not just your driveway but the neighbor's driveway. And there's a hydrant across the street, so if something catches on fire, you want to make sure people can access the hydrant and all that. I haven't even done my driveway, just the end of the driveway where the plow had left the big mountain. Still snowing, so why go hardcore into the driveway when you're just going to have to do it all over again? Who is Fred Flintstone? Fred Flintstone. <laughs> Sometimes my feet don't match up with my tongue, and you just kind of... You were, you were fleeing probably down your driveway trying to get everything all cleared off. Yes, I don't think you're supposed to snow blow in the high gear like that, but you know that's what we had to do. Were you waking up the neighbors yelling yabba dabba do as you were clearing snow? I should have, but I was... <laughs> yabba dabba do! 
<laughs> What's that idiot yelling? I don't know. I'll see if he'll do our driveway. Exactly. We are sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, which is located on Highway 2 just down from the airport. You are not an idiot. Um, just down from the airport, $5 movie nights are there on Tuesdays. It's a great place to catch a movie. If you are still a little bit skittish about going with the pandemic going on, you can still support the Bemidji Theater by going and getting concessions. Bring them home with you. Bring your concessions home. But that money still goes directly to the theater. Concessions are how they are able to make a profit. And so that's a great way to be able to support them, even if you are not feeling comfortable about being at the movies right now. It's the Bemidji Theater. I was just there, in fact, this past weekend, getting a chance to go see one of the films that's on the big screen What'd you see? at the moment. I went and saw Death on the Nile. What'd you think? I thought it was... No spoilers. It was as I expected in terms of how lavish it was. It was quite lavish. It was lavish. It was lavishly filmed, put together, the CGI, the all of those things. Very, very lavish, and they leaned hard into... The time period of that mid nineteen thirties or thereabouts. However, I I oh, was knew it good. It was solid. I I would say solid. It was it was no surprise the story to me because I had I had watched the previous Death on the Nile, the one that was made back in the seventies. Um, I had gotten a chance to watch that one. So the story and what was coming there, I it is it's been a little while. I think like at least a year since I saw the original death on the nile so i i knew the story of thereabouts but kenneth branagh who not only plays hercule poirot but is also directing this movie came up with some ways to be able to at least on some of the edges without impacting the story all that much do some things a little bit different and and added a few pieces in there in turn including a little bit more on poirot himself and I thought that it added a little bit more depth to the story than maybe would have otherwise been in there. So I thought it was pretty solid. It, it was a solid outing. It was, like I said, as lavish as, as you would expect with, with a movie of this kind of story and, and ilk. Um, certainly much like Murder on the Orient Express in that regard. Did he direct so, that one too? I don't think he directed that one, no. They got a little franchise going here now, Agatha Christie-esque. So. Yeah, those, those two movies, those have been, the, uh, those two stories, those have been the ones that in particular have, have now had multiple iterations on the big screen. I don't know if they'll go for another one. It might might depend on how things do here. 20th Century Studios, the formerly 20th Century Fox, was who was who ended up putting this together. And this has been another movie that has been on hold due to the pandemic. So it was good to go see it. I had I had been kicking myself when Murder on the Orient Express came out because I wanted to go see it, but I didn't. I didn't ultimately go see it in theaters. I was glad I got a chance to go see Death on the Nile. It was it was good and one of those movies that yeah, you're you're glad you went and saw in theaters. You know, I would think with all the movies that got delayed and people that didn't get to see him, I didn't get to see the new Ghostbusters on the big screen. I went maybe a week too late and they'd already pulled it. Um, what a good opportunity. They don't send movies in boxes anymore on actual film. It's generally digital. They send it like you would an MP3. So here's a great opportunity. Call it a uh, two-year makeup, you know, and you send all these movies that came out during the pandemic that you may or may not have seen. And when the coast is clear, quote-unquote officially, send them back out. Hey, you may have seen it on streaming or a DVD, but if you missed it in the big theaters... What's it going to cost to send all that out? And you're not necessarily marketing 
a movie. You're marketing movies, plural. Hey, if you missed something from the last two, three, whatever years it is, come on out and see them because we got them all this month. The the flip side to that, and this is kind of me playing devil's advocate here, is that the flip side is probably that you you would create maybe some kind of logjam in terms of options, like too many options perhaps at the at the theaters. But I do like that idea a lot, Dave. I, know, I think it's a really, really good one. We're just coming out of that period where there's nothing playing in the theater. We're starting to get a few things coming out now, but January, February, generally dead time. What a great time to let these movies from the last couple of years come out. You can see them on the big screen like you want to. You don't want to feel cheated. I've seen uh, all of whatever movie on the big screen, but I didn't get to see it because I came too late and blah, blah, blah. What a good opportunity for the future. Think of that January, February for 2023. Okay. That, I was going to say we're just about at the end of February, so you couldn't implement it now, but... That's Sometimes a really good my idea. great ideas take a moment to flesh out. Sometimes they do. I, I think that's the case for any of us. <laughs> On some other notes, Uncharted just came out. We had talked about that in our preview a little bit. And as entertaining as that looks, as far as like some of the trailers and, mov- and TV spots I've seen, not really getting the greatest of reviews as far as how, it, how it's being received critically. I'm not sure how it did at the box office its opening weekend. I mean, when you get a combo of Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg, there's a ton of promise there, but apparently it just has not fired in terms of its story and taking its source material and getting it the right kind of payoff on the screen. So not getting the greatest of reviews. I'm not sure how it did exactly at the box office this weekend. I'm hearing similar, but I'm hearing it's doing well enough that they're considering doing another one. So clearly it's got to be making enough bank to do that. But (laughs) I'm hearing the same thing. It's kind of paper thin, but you've got some great uh, charisma and chemistry with the with Wahlberg and uh, and with the, the whole cast. They're doing a great job. So Holland and Wahlberg really kind of saving the material. So generally, video game movie adaptions don't generally do well. There are exceptions to that, but not always. Uh, we'll see. Okay, it it did extremely well at the box office this past yeah. weekend. It it pulled in. Almost forty-four million domestically. They're gonna if they're gonna make another one, they're gonna get away with this one on the skin of their teeth. But if they're gonna do an Uncharted two, they need to come up with a better story and a better script, and they can't just rely on the charm of the actors. That's when you run into the the first one was good, but the second one, eh, you're going right down that road. Let's see if we can uh, fix the problem before we make it. And finally, in terms of some local item or not local, some. Uh, Current items, local in terms of news, uh, current items that are on the docket here for the podcast today. We are less than two weeks away from the release of the Batman. It is just about here. I know during the All-Star weekend for the NBA and during the All-Star game, they ran a new trailer for the movie, which I have not seen. I've only seen the one trailer, that original one, um, which was really, really well done and certainly has created a lot of buzz and hype. The Batman is just about around the corner. I'm looking up at the exit sign and thinking of the Batman because the like the imagery with the red and all of that. I just looking at that exit sign makes me think of the Batman as I as I see that right now. I'm I'm really really intrigued about the Batman. I I'm th- I think a lot of people are because they've revamped the cast. They've got this whole new look to it, and you are especially intrigued, Dave, by the detective crime noir feel of this movie which has 
a lot of uh, a lot of roots. Batman has a lot of roots that are of that nature, even if the film iterations have not always been quite along those lines. Although the very best live action Batman movie is in itself a crime action, somewhat noir film, The Dark Knight. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that this is a very, very different Batman like we haven't seen before. And he's got a lot of nicknames, but the first one was the world's greatest detective. A lot of some of the Batman movies have been about how hard he can kick and what, you know, gadgets he's got, where he almost seems like he just falls into the plot rather than decipher it. And that's kind of what made Batman so remarkable was that he was so brilliant. And he could really crack the code and he could get into it. And this is different. This is not like a Batman movie that we've seen before. And I'll admit myself, when there's a movie I really want to see, I want to stay as ignorant as I possibly can about it because I'm not a big fan of spoilers. I want to sit down ignorant and let it unfold. Now, it's not to say I don't know anything, but I, my bar for what I want to know before I know the, going to see the movie is low. And when I get to that bar, I don't want to see, I haven't seen the new trailer. Don't want to, because they tend to give things away. Right. And I don't want that, you know? So if, you know, Bruce Wayne is tied up to the whatever, and you don't think he's going to get away, but then you saw something in the trailer where, well, clearly he's going to get away because I haven't seen that scene yet, and it's a big set piece, so you know that, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to know. So this looks really, really good. Uh, I think this is going to be a very different movie. Maybe kids won't love it as much, but who knows? Because if it's going to be more of a thinking man's Batman with less kicks and less gadgets, then maybe that alienates part of them. But this doesn't seem to be that kind of movie anyway. Well, we've seen self-serious not work for DC in the last few years in a few of their efforts with Justice League related materials, um, not not specifically just the Justice League, but also other related ones. I, I'm thinking Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice in particular. So, it yeah. doesn't look like studio interference took a big role in the making of this movie. Look at Batman and Robin. Look at Spider Man Three. These are when executives that don't know anything about telling a story. Uh, I want to have blah 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 in the movie. Put it in. Well, that's stupid. It makes no sense. Put it in the movie. I'm a producer. And then the movie starts to get worse and worse and worse. This looks like Matt Reeves, the director, really got to do his version of a Batman movie, not unlike Christopher Nolan. And I'm sure there were people like, hey, could you put in a giant spider in the movie? There's a long story behind that. You can look it up. Kevin Smith spider. Go look it up on YouTube. Anyway, um, this does not look like that's the case. This looks like he came up with his version of Batman. He probably talked it over in a room and they said, all right, go make your movie. And it looks like he did. Um, and this has been a lot of iterations. This is back when uh, um, Ben Affleck was going to be Batman. He was involved in part of the writing. I don't know how much of that version survives into the current iteration when Robert Pattinson took over. This really does look good. Yeah, and the people involved. I mean, the the cast that they've got involved, it's, it's an exceptionally skilled cast that they have put together for each of the different roles. And I'm... I've heard some rumblings of where they took some inspiration from as far as previous Batman stories that have that have been a part of the inspiration for this one. And it, it sounds like a really good collection of some of the previous comic book and even like animated film ideas that they that they took some pieces from to be able to forge this story and put it together. I saw I saw Mask of the Phantasm pop up as one area where they took some inspiration from for for this story so that's just one example we'll, i heard a we'll lot see of what else i heard year one 
has got a lot of influence in this one. So it's not that unlike the 1989 Batman, where it's not really an origin story, but yeah. this is, Batman is very beginning. He is not I heard the, the same thing about Gordon. year one. Yeah, there's yeah. no Robin. He's just kind of starting out, but this is not Batman Begins, where you see how Batman began. We've seen that a few times now. Now let's just see him get his footsteps and get a start. Batman Year One seems to be a pretty strong influence yep. for this. So we'll see. It's not out yet. Uh, and once we all get a chance to see it, it'd be fun to do kind of a spoiler dive, not just into the movie, but how this fits into the echelon of big screen, maybe small screen Batman to move the character forward as a whole. Yeah, we'll definitely have to revisit that here in a few weeks' time. I'd be interested to see how you take this, since The Dark Knight is, to you, sacred ground. Is this treading on sacred ground for you, or is this a good push into a different area? Will you be defensive of The Dark Knight compared to The Batman? I'd be interested to hear your take on it once you see it. Yeah, I'm I'm really, really intrigued by it, and I've become more interested in it. Like, during the whole Batflex stuff, like, <laughs> I, I was I was not really all that into it. Now with with this one, I am really intrigued. I, I like I I loved the trailer. I mean, you can win with the trailer and lose with the movie. We've seen that before. But I I loved the trailer and and I love the the collection of people who they've put together for it. And and again with that earlier in his time sort of drop in parachute into the story feel of of this this movie. I think it opens up a pretty wide canvas. So bring it on. That's that's how I'm feeling. I, I want to see more it. To talk about when we get it to the other side. Regardless of what that might mean for, hey, how does that stack up against the previous one? Let's let's check it out and find out. Well, forget about episode 100. Let's get all the spotlight and the sparkles and the fireworks for episode 99, baby. Well, you're really excited, especially because you came up with this idea several weeks ago because you you watched. A movie a couple, in well, a particular. Couple of, a couple of things. It's It was just one that just kind of really kind of kicked it into gear, but there's a lot of stuff like this. So we're going to give you a heads up right now. We're going to be talking spoilers forthcoming. So uh, if we start talking about a movie that you haven't seen, uh, that you want to see, uh, we're probably going to spoil a few things for you. So we're going to give you an advance warning right now. There will be spoilers forthcoming. Uh, we're going to be talking about an interesting kind of a concept Basically, to put it down to one word, nostalgia, and working that into a movie and what becomes of nostalgia when it's maybe too much and too heavy-handed, so maybe fan service is the way to go. Is fan service a bad thing? Should things deliver what the expectations are? When do some things become nostalgic, and why are some things nostalgic when the first time they came out weren't so hot? So how do you get nostalgic about something like New Coke that you know was something that you know everyone pretty much agreed uh, it's not that good, and so it was a big failed marketing thing, and it went away. But then a few years later, when they brought it back just for a quick summer promotion, everyone was clamoring to get some free, you know, you know, new Coke. Be interesting if they bring back Crystal Pepsi. Same kind of thing. It wasn't that great the first time. They did bring back Crystal Pepsi for a little bit. It's so working things like that. And I'll give you a perfect example to kind of get a springboarded in. If we were watching the Super Bowl and you're watching all the ads, I saw a cable ad for streaming. It was uh, Midco, maybe. I don't remember what it was. But it had Jim Carrey as the cable guy. Yep. And cable guy Jim Carrey was the first Jim Carrey movie during the height of Jim Carrey in the you know mid late nineties that finally started to turn the corner. Like, uh, well, uh, maybe this isn't so great. You know, after Ace Ventura, after The Mask, which was its own kind of thing, and Dumb and Dumber, then comes the Cable Guy, a very different, dark 
comedy turn. Ben Stiller directed it. Uh, it was very, so it's one of his least memorable, well loved characters, but they brought it back. Why not Ace Ventura, which is pretty much universally loved by all Jim Carrey fans or The Mask or something? Why bring back one that was kind of ostracized? Where does the nostalgia kick in with this? And why is something so reviled to become more revered over time? It kind of reminds you of that line from Raiders of the Lost Ark when Belloc, the French archaeologist, looks down at Indiana Jones right before he seals him into the Well of Souls. Well, who knows? In you know, 5,000 years buried in the sand, maybe you'll become worth something someday. Is that all it takes for something to become classic nostalgia is just time? Anything and everything, even the bad things? come into fashion, or how does that work? So the good and the bad, this is not a linear topic. This isn't one thing. This is like picking at a plate of noodles. There's a lot of different things to talk about that don't necessarily connect to the next thing other than just the basis of uh, nostalgia. Well, the movie that put you over the top on really, really wanting to talk about this, Dave, was in fact the newest Ghostbusters movie, Ghostbusters Afterlife, because you came in and you told me, Boy, this movie does such a great job of tapping into the nostalgia of the Ghostbusters story while being able to make its own make its own way. Now, I will add, I read a, a blog piece coming into today's episode that talked about this very topic that we're discussing with nostalgia and how much is too much, how much is just right, and like you discussed too, when does it get kind of weird when you are tapping into nostalgia of things that didn't quite work so well? Because this this blog talked about how they, they really felt that Ghostbusters Afterlife walked a tightrope, sometimes well, sometimes not, between having too much nostalgic stuff that was going on and, and having just the right amount. And it felt like sometimes to, to this person, they crossed that line. But sometimes they nailed it as well. But you, in particular, a Ghostbusters aficionado who I have seen dress up in the costume <laughs> here Full in this very pack. station during Halloween, you felt that they nailed it as far as getting the requisite kind of nostalgia piece and addition and, and going, they captured the essence of what this was about. First of all, if you're talking about a sequel, and now there's other terms like requel, you know, it's sort of a reboot, kind of a sequel, kind of both. It's got a leg in both territories. Uh, And this is actually a direct sequel. But when was the last one that was part of the real true lineage? 1989's Ghostbusters 2, the one that came out in the late 2000s, early early 2010s, whatever that it was, 2015, whatever, answer the call. It wasn't a sequel at all. It was a complete reboot. And even though all the actors were back, they were in different roles, you know, and they had, you know, nods to the original, but it's like the original never took place. And a lot of fans didn't want that. There was a lot of reasons that movie didn't work. And some of that is a rabbit hole that's not worth going down. But one of the criticisms that I tend to agree with is that it wasn't in any way, shape or form a sequel. Ernie Hudson played one of the characters' uncles, but not Winston Zeddemore, one of the original Ghostbusters. He was a completely different guy. It would have been cooler if they were the original guys handing the baton over to the gals and let them take over from there. But kind it doesn't like, happen that way. Kind of like what Ocean's 8 did. Yes. Because that at least acknowledged the existence of the previous three movies while doing something completely different with an all-female cast 
they still acknowledged the previous existence yeah. of the other three movies and then stemmed off of that while also forging their own trail. If you're going to have a good sequel, you need to have you know something that touches back to the original. You need to have continuation of threads because that's what a sequel is. Or in addition to that, rather, you need to have a, a different direction gone. Now, you can do it like a bottle, like, say, most of the James Bond movies. You have the same elements, but, you know, one element from the first movie, plot-wise, really doesn't feed into the next one. Most of them are all completely isolated. Now, there's exceptions to that, Daniel Craig in particular, um, but they're not connected. Then you get others where they are. Look at all the Lethal Weapon movies, for example. There's some kind of a thread that continues to move forward from the next to the next to the next. It's not one story told in X number of parts. It's... This is these are these two guys and the world around them and as they move forward through the world basically is what it is, um, and that's what Ghostbusters needs to do. But the last Ghostbusters to feature the original cast as their characters was 1989. That's a long time ago, and so this is with that passage of time. Now, like we mentioned, this is going to be spoiler heavy, and we're going to get a little spoiler heavy into this, and I kind of say that across the room to you, too, because Hoove hasn't seen the second one, and he hasn't seen the newest one, so in the And I haven't seen Spider-Man No Way Home. True. So I'm going to have- I'm far, gonna have from, far from home, I I'm should gonna say, have the newest to, one. The newest, I think, is No Way Home. I know, they get confusing. There's Homecoming, there's Far them. From Home, now there's No Way Home. There's all home in Spider-Man, but anyway- so this movie, Ghostbusters Afterlife, is really about Egon, who is Harold Ramis's character, who's the most scientific-minded of the bunch. It's No Way Home, by yep. the way. That's the newest one. So this is about his family carrying on after him. Egon had just picked up and, without any understanding from the other Ghostbusters, moves off to Oklahoma, and that alienates the other Ghostbusters. It alienates his family, and he dies early in the movie. Now, Harold Ramis, the actor, died just a few years before this. This movie is all about Egon and his family and his lineage and how it ties in. And then, of course, over the course of the movie, you find out that he didn't lose some marbles. He was on to something that nobody believed him. His family didn't believe in him. The other Ghostbusters didn't follow what he was trying to do. And he's actively trying to save the world until his family inherits the place. And they realize what he was on to and they pick up the mantle. The original Ectomobile is in it. You got the proton packs. You have all the surviving cast members, I think with the exception of Rick Moranis, who just is kind of retired from movies. Everybody comes back for the very least a cameo. You see all the other three Ghostbusters suited up and doing Ghostbuster things, and it's awesome. And it is one that has a lot of fan service. It calls back. And you can make the argument maybe too much because, big spoiler, the big bad guys from the first movie, you know, Zool and Gozer and the Keymaster, they're all back in this one. So it's done very much as a parallel to the original, but it goes in different directions. And so you can make the argument, well, that was treading too close to the original, but what it really is is they didn't finish the job in the first one, and Egon knew it, and Egon had to close the job, basically. But it's a passing of the torch to the next one. It's about coming to terms with your past, with your family, with your friends, and moving forward. And the way that they bring Egon back, because Harold Ramis is no longer with us, he's still an active character. In this movie, it's the first time that a Ghostbuster is a ghost in the movie, but a good ghost fighting side by side with his buddies. And the way it is done, you can Google how they did it, but the way it was done was done very, very well. It was done with love. And you got to give a shout out to Ivan Reitman, who directed the first two, whose son Jason Reitman directed this one. And we just lost Ivan Reitman just yep, like a week ago. Right. 
So it's, uh, yeah. And, and the funny thing is, I'll tell you now, Ivan Reitman was one of the stand-ins for Egon, and then they would just replace his face. Huh. So who better to essentially on on camera, on set, play Egon and then be replaced digitally than Ivan Reitman, the guy that you know had a lot to do with you know forming of all of that. Yeah. So it's a movie that is, it wasn't, it wouldn't work without the nostalgia, but you don't need to have seen the original to get this new one. But it's extremely helpful because when these other guys show up and there's a past there, you're not going to hook onto that until you've seen the originals. But those that have seen the originals. Wow, is it a is it a come around? It helps whatever bad blood was created from the last Ghostbusters movie, and by that I mean the one from a few years ago that had all kinds of stuff we don't need to talk about anymore. Um, this was an apology in a way because this was done the right way. But sometimes I think you need a little fan service. You might need to go a little heavy into what the fans want to see because what they were handed prior to that didn't please a lot of people. I think there are times though. When you do that, and it, it may feel really good initially, but then over time, it, it ends up ringing as pretty hollow. And I go, back, I go back again to that blog piece that I was reading that talked about nostalgia, and I thought they nailed it when talking about another movie in this collection of films that they were discussing related to that, and that was Star Wars The Force Awakens. The Force Awakens came at the dawn of the Disney-Star Wars marriage, which has been up and down. It has created some really good things. Rogue One, The Mandalorian, it's created some really bad things. The sequel trilogy, just on the whole, has has not been good. I didn't think Book of Boba Fett was all that good. I would either. agree. It, it wasn't was, bad, it, but it, it was wasn't plot great. Filler. It was plot filler, and it also took away some of the mystique of Boba Fett. Yeah. So, what The Force Awakens did at the time was it, it created this injection of new life into, into Star Wars. And with something that felt very similar to the very beginning. And they leaned heavily into that, very intentionally into that. Going back to the start and, and getting something that felt very similar to A New Hope. And while it did create that very nostalgic feel... At the same time, I, I still remember, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, when going to watch the movie with my brothers and having an argument on the car ride home with them <laughs> because I, I thought it was good, and one of my brothers was like, no, come on, seriously? Like, this was not very good. Like, and he saw through the facade. He saw through that this was a re... This was like a re a revisiting of where we were at the very beginning with, with a new hope. And the more I look back on the force awakens, I'm sorry. I, I got to agree with him more and more. The, the more I look back on it, they relied so heavily on the nostalgia that they didn't realize that they were creating something that felt so lockstep similar to a new hope. And then just sprinkled in, uh, a few people from from what had previously done been done with Star Wars and dropped them in for a time in some cases like Han Solo and and let others be a little bit more part of the story at least for what they were shaping up to be which they didn't even know what the story was shaping up to be moving forward from there which as the next two movies proved it just it I, I think the way that the blog piece laid it out was perfect 
it it rings hollow now and it has not aged great. It, and in my book, I completely agree. I agree to a point. Um, but I think watching it then and even watching it now, you are knowing that you're going to watch the first part of a trilogy. You got to look at it all as a whole. And that's where it really falls apart. Because the movie on its own, it does stand. It absolutely takes the same general template of the new hope and just kind of gives it a little tweak and it's essentially the same movie with differences but if you were going to hold it up compared to the whole thing if you look at a new hope and you put it in with the original trilogy it takes its place as part of that one giant story that's the original trilogy let alone the entire nine-part saga you take a look at the sequel trilogy if you can really call it that now they screwed it up from the get-go. They should have come... Well, we've talked about this before, so we don't need to go down this rabbit hole again, but they did not plan out these movies very well at all. I think they started well, but then all of that fell apart in the next one, and they tried to glue some of it back together for the ninth one, but forget it's It's done. It's over. So the whole part doesn't work because you know what's coming next, and it's hollow then, and it just rings hollow. But when you saw it... It was fan service, and in some degree, I think you needed it. I think Star Wars needed to take a step back before it can move forward. Problem was, it went forward right into a brick wall. And uh, with this, with the spinoffs on the shows, The Mandalorian, great show. Boba Fett, not bad, but it's what The Mandalorian should, or the, it's it should have been what The Mandalorian was. You know, if you want to bring Boba Fett back, I think that's a great idea. That would be something that fans want to see. But you can't deliver a completely morphed character. Characters are going to evolve. Characters are never going to be stuck in a bubble forever and, and grow. I get that. But what Boba Fett evolved into isn't really resembling what everyone grew to love. The Mandalorian is. And they were going to make a Boba Fett, young Boba Fett movie that they ended up not making and did Boba, and did Rogue One instead. But they basically took the ideas they were going to make for this Boba Fett movie and put it into The Mandalorian. That's great. Resurrect Boba Fett or have him bust out of the Sarlacc or whatever and have him be an occasional pop-in guest host on The Mandalorian. You know, but where he's going now, it's it's not Boba Fett-esque. You know, I get what they're trying to do. Well, we can't have him do the same thing as The Mandalorian. I get it. So maybe you should do it. You know, have him show up and help the Mandalorian and be the big muscle. Oh, my God, they need help. Here comes Boba Fett. That's what they should have done. But to screw it up, hmm, we'll see. That's the thing about nostalgia, Dave. We we love it. Uh, we, You and I, in a music sense, we are big on nostalgia. We do these these weekends, the these awesome throwback weekends that we do occasionally on KZY, one of our stations, where... We're doing an 80s weekend. We're doing a 90s weekend. We we love nostalgia, and we love plunging into nostalgia. But sometimes sometimes you can get so wrapped up in the nostalgia piece that you lose sight, and in a movie sense, of being able to create real depth. Or you think that all you're going to do is ride the nostalgia wave, and then there are a lot of other things that get lost. But there's another element to this nostalgia discussion that you really put down as one of the pillars of today's topic and today's discussion. And that is, are we maybe sometimes casting too large of a net when it comes to nostalgia? Yeah. To go back to, you know, nostalgia happens, it has been said, in 20-year cycles. So we're recording this episode late February of 2022. Well, you go back to 2012, you go back to 2002, now you start getting into the early double O's or the early 2000s, whatever you want to call it. The aughts. And yeah. this is when nostalgia tends to be at about its peak. 
So this is post 9-11, and there's not a whole lot around 02 that I remember all that fondly. Life was kind of in a foggy funk back then. But that's where the nostalgia wave is cresting right now, 20 years back. So that means things like The Phantom Menace are becoming you know, popular again. And like I said, I've told the story before, the summer of 99, we're getting re- I was in college at that point. We're getting ready to go, and by the time that movie was going to come out, everyone's going to be gone their separate ways because it's summer vacation and whatever. Everyone's got jobs and internships. We all wanted to see it. Nobody saw it together until it was later in the fall. We'd all seen it a couple of times, and finally somebody was brave enough to say, Am I the only one that didn't think it was all that good? And then gradually, begrudgingly, people were like, well, maybe it's kind of... And those were the first cracks. And a lot of people saw it a bunch of times because I had to have been me. I, I must not have been in the right frame of mind. I'd overhyped it or something, and then it didn't get much better. But now, it's 20-some years later, the nostalgia for The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, which did come out 20 years ago this year, is starting to peak a little bit. But... I'm not feeling the wave as crusty as it did, say, in the late 90s when the special editions came out, when their 20-year cycle was coming up, because those were awesome movies. But it does tend to put on some rose-colored glasses to the point where maybe you need to put some perspective on things. If it wasn't great the first time around, why is it all of a sudden so much better now? If you go out in public and you see your, your high school bully, and you're in your 20s or 30s, Are you nostalgic to see him in a weird way? Because maybe now you can take him. Who knows? You know, I didn't mind seeing one of the guys in my high school class that was Mr. Sexpot and all the girls were just hot for him and all this. Now he's losing his hair and he hasn't improved in his personality, according to me. I didn't mind seeing that I had in some way, shape or form, pardon my vanity, exceeded him in some ways. You know, he was way ahead of me when I was younger. And I think that it's kind of balanced out now and I've anyway, moving forward. But uh, why does something that wasn't so great seem so great now just because it was something from yesteryear? Are these people that you're running across, people you'd want to spend time with, or is it just kind of cool to see them from across the store? No, I don't need to say hi. Well, that's, that's it, right? It's not going to get any better than this. Let's just remember and move forward. Are you ready to unveil the biggest spoiler-related item for this topic and along those lines that you had coming into today. Remind me, I had a bunch, so remind me which one you had in mind. This goes back this goes back to No Way Home again. Oh, Spider-Man? Yes. Yeah. Um Spider-Man is one of those things that lumps in with, Spat, with Superman and Batman and all these heroes. There isn't one de facto definitive version. It gets done, it gets recycled and rebooted, whether it's in the comic book form. We've had three in the last two decades now for yeah, Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider-Man is something that, you know, I'll, I'll give it to you like Actually, this. Actually, four if you want to count the Spider-Verse. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me put it to you like this. A completely non-movie related thing. The New York Yankees and their sporting jerseys. They're pretty much the same things today that Babe Ruth wore over 100 years ago. Minnesota Wild... They've had, they've only been around 21 years. How many different versions of the home jersey have they had? Like 15 by now? And they just don't stick. They keep redoing it. Stop that. Pick one that you like and stick with it. Stop trying to rebrand it. But Spider-Man makes his way to the big screen proper for the first time, hey, about 20 years ago. Came out in 02 with Tobey Maguire and Sam Raimi directing it. They did three of them. And they were much beloved. Well, the first first two two. were much beloved. Huge, oh, yeah. huge box office successes. I mean, they smashed records, critically well-received. They did, uh, I mean, I remember Spider-Man was the thing. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. But then they got too much studio interference for the third one. There are plans for Spider-Man 4 that Sam Raimi had had enough after the third one. Yeah. He's like, you know what? You guys, we're done. And then they decided, well, we, we, we killed that golden goose. Let's try it again. So they reboot it by, in a way, almost remaking the first Tobey Maguire movie, which at that point was barely 10 years old. And they're going to now the amazing Spider-Man. They recast everybody. In comes Andrew Garfield. Say what you want about those movies. There's, they're not complete bombs. There's things about them to enjoy. But overall, oh, what a mess. What a mess. The second one in particular, a huge mess. Then they got to start again. But by this point, the MCU is starting to pick up the Marvel Universe. There's a lot of legal disputes. Are they going to get Spider-Man involved? That You can Google and read the story about that. But ultimately, it comes to pass, and they recast it again. Tom Holland, a much younger version of Spider-Man. But they're not remaking the stuff that had come before, thankfully. But now we are at 20 years after Tobey Maguire had donned the web slinger gear for the first time. And now you have No Way Home, where, another spoiler... All these previous movies, in one way, shape, or form or another, all kind of come to an intersection. Tobey Maguire and various plot lines from his movies are there. The Amazing Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield, and various plot lines are there. Plus Tom Holland, it's the intersection of all the Spider-Men. And they're all there, front and center, including the actors that played those parts. And I don't just mean Tobey Maguire, I mean Willem Dafoe is back as Norman Osborn at, at all. They're all back in a lot of ways. So it's a huge fan service, and I haven't seen the movie yet, so and I the, can't speak, you know, rightfully about whether it's good or not. But, but everybody, to a man, the weird, is saying it's wonderful. And the weird thing that that you have been feeling regarding this is, yes, for the Sam Raimi movies, there is a real appreciation and reverence for them because they were that good. But you are asking the question, why are we extending the same kind of reverence toward the Andrew Garfield movies, which? Quite honestly, we're not all that good. They they had moments. They did some good things in those movies. But why are we all of a sudden extending such a, an olive branch toward those movies as well? How can you be nostalgic about something like last week? You know, it, it was last week. It barely passed into history before we're getting nostalgic for it. Wait, what? So I'm not knocking down Andrew Garfield's version. It wasn't necessarily good. Yeah, and Andrew Garfield, I'm not knocking down him or those movies, but the fact of the matter was, they weren't that good. Oh, they made box office, but people found out while they were sitting in the seats after they'd paid their money, this movie isn't really very good. And that's why the second one didn't do very good. That's why there isn't an Amazing Spider-Man 3, because it was done at that point. Why are we bringing back the low-hanging fruit rather than just the high? Now, the Tobey Maguire, I get it. If you're bringing back Andrew Garfield to be a completist and keep all of them going, otherwise the big elephant in the room is, why is there Tobey Maguire and Tom Holland? Where's Andrew Garfield? Why did we pass him over? Well, the obvious answer is because those movies weren't very good. So I get it. I get it. I get it. But there's a lot of heavy lifting plot elements from those movies that are brought into this movie. Why would you do that? Why not just bring in the character, maybe another character from those franchi- from that particular wing of the franchise? So why bring back things that were less than shiny the first time and think they're going to shine even more so just because you've got the rose-tinted glasses of about 15 minutes ago? Because those movies aren't very old. They're less than a decade. We have a weird way of, of t- talking about that, dealing with that, seeing that come up. In movies, because it's not the first time that that something like that has happened, where you do some kind of cameo or callback to something, and it maybe wasn't exactly something that was well received at the time. For instance, I I brought up to you 
my amusement at the fact that in Guardians of the Galaxy they brought up a they they have a small cameo from a character who had its own movie in I think the late 80s was when it came out that's a movie that I've never watched by the way but no need. I'm I'm aware of it yeah I know there's no need and that would be Howard the Duck who makes an appearance in in Guardians of the Galaxy and people are like, "Oh, it's Howard the Duck. Oh, that's funny. That's a that's a hilarious cameo." And they they get a kick out of that. And yet, Howard the Duck was not a good movie. That was not a good movie. And yet people are are laughing and thinking that it's great that they made a cameo like that. Oh, wow. Look at them how clever that is and stuff. And it's like it wasn't a good movie. Although at the very least, Guardians maybe perhaps was was poking fun at that very fact by only doing a cameo of Howard the Duck and not like having him ride side saddle or sidecar with everyone else. Talk about that seriously. Oh yeah, I don't understand. To me, it seems like you know, let's make a joke at the homecoming and let's get the least popular kid in school elected homecoming king so we can all point and laugh like the movie Carrie something's messed up about that. Why is it, Why are we going that route in the first place? It wasn't popular the first time. Besides, the best known iteration of Howard the Duck in any of its forms has got to be the George Lucas bomb. And I hate to tell you, it goes down to this day as one of the biggest movie bombs of all time ever. And the fact that it was supposed to be George Lucas is stepping away from Indiana Jones and Star Wars, which was really his biggest things he had done to that point, and really to this point, too. Um, and it was horrible, horrible, horrible movie. If you really want to watch it and turn it into some kind of horrible drinking game or something, fine, have at it, but you're on your own. It is not a good movie. There's really not much redeemable about it at all. The fact that some of the stars, like Tim Robbins is in that movie, the fact that he had a career that went on beyond that movie is a testament to how good he is. Thank goodness, because Shawshank followed later, and thank goodness Tim Robbins was still able to power through. Yeah, it's so why bring back these things that hadn't really no value the first time go around? I don't care if I ever see Howard the Duck again ever. But for some reason, after 20 years or whatever the magic number is, enough time has gone by that we're going to see it again, maybe try it again. Okay. Not every Superman movie was good, but Superman, like I said, exists in many different forms. There really is no ultimate version. Superman 4 is one you could certainly get away from and never see, ever, and you will live a long, happy, healthy life. I don't care how far down your jaw drops. It's just, it's a bad movie. But... That's not to say you can't go back and revisit the character. Let's just seems not go that re- there are others walking by who disagree at the moment. Let's just not or go just back the and revisit the plot elements that didn't work the first time and try. Well, maybe <laughs> if we put more sparkle on it, maybe if there's more frosting on the cake. No, it was uh, a bad thing from the start. Leave it alone. Let's move forward. Speaking of leave it alone, I, I wrote down another item that comes to mind when talking about nostalgia, where. Well, another movie that came to mind when talking about nostalgia where to that same line of thought, Dave, and maybe a little bit different from it. Yeah, leaving something alone sometimes is the best way to go about it rather than sometimes people try to exploit nostalgia for their own purposes and their own doing. And I saw an egregious example of that last year. I didn't go watch the movie, but I all I needed to see were the reviews and how people reacted to it. I I saw a prime example of that with Space Jam 2. Space Jam, the original, in the 1990s. No, it's not the greatest movie. 
It it really is not. It is not going to be this. But it's fun. It is super fun. Yes. It it's not going to win Oscars. It's not a groundbreaker. It's it's not. But it's a ton of fun. And I, I, I chuckle about it even just thinking about the movie, seeing Michael and Bugs together, like seeing that original, seeing one of the original posters. You see half of Michael Jordan's face on one side of the poster. You see half of Bugs Bunny's face on the other half of the poster. Michael Jordan, Bugs Bunny, Space Jam. Like it was, it, it was fun. It, it's a fun movie. It, it's it's hilarious. I look at some of the writing in there, and I and I just laugh. Where the the team is getting themselves hyped up before they go on the court, and Tweety Bird rounds it off by saying, "Those monsters will wish they'd never been born." And then Michael gets in there into the huddle, and these Looney Tunes are trying to avoid being enslaved on Moron Mountain for forever. And Michael gets in the huddle and says to them one of the great lines in movie history, guys, let's just go out there and have fun. They're trying to avoid forget about slavery. Yeah, forget about all of that. Let's just go out there and have fun. And the Looney Tunes are like, it's Michael Jordan saying it. So we're going to go. Yeah. Kind of like with Michael's secret stuff, even though it's just water, we're going to believe it. And go, yeah! So it, it just, it, it's a fun movie. The it's first a, Space Jam is a handful of candy corn. Not everyone likes it, but those that do love their candy corn. Yeah. But I think LeBron James grew up, loved that movie. I'm in a position, I can be in that movie, basically. And it was yeah. a vanity project that was misconceived from you the get-go. You are taking the words out of my mouth. You nailed it. It was a vanity project. And not only, mm. even worse... Like, let's talk about exploiting the nostalgia. Even worse, they used it as a means within the movie. And again, I didn't watch the movie, but I have read many people who have talked about how egregious and annoying this was. They used it almost like an HBO Max advertisement. Yeah. Where they were advertising other properties in there and capitalizing off the nostalgia or the cross-commercial stuff of... We're going to cross over into other stories and other entities and other movie properties here and kind of use this as a means to promote them because the Space Jam 2 was released on HBO Max. And it's like, come on, you are totally manipulating this here. And that, that was that was super disappointing to read about. I had no interest in going to see Space Jam 2 anyway because I, I thought that it was just a vanity project like you talked about Dave and LeBron James trying to do yet another thing that Michael Jordan did in his pursuit of being the all-time best in the NBA and you end up manipulating the nostalgia too much there yeah you know I'll give you we've talked about a couple of bad examples let's talk about some of the better side of nostalgia where yes, it's better please. used let's let's be positive one of here. my all-time favorite movies is I consider it not just a movie but part of the trilogy and I consider it all together is Back to the Future Part 2 not only do they go more, you know, it's the same kind of thing, but it's add something new, but it very much literally goes back to the first movie where you've got two versions of Marty McFly in the same scene. One is the scene from the original movie, and now you've got Marty that's part of this new thread that's trying to be avoiding 
but has to be in the situation. So you got two Marty McFlies, two Michael J. Foxes in the same shot, going back, having to recreate the sets painstakingly to look exactly the way they did in 1985 when they shot the first one. And now it's four years later. They got to make it look the same. So you're getting exactly what you had the first time, literally the same scene, but different. It was a great idea. Now, some people think that part two, like most trilogies, the middle part is sometimes the weakest point of the trilogy because it's kind of the lynch point. You need it to function as a, as a purpose, but not necessarily, you know, Empire Strikes Back certainly breaks that mold. But part two is fabulous if you take it all by itself. It does exactly what a sequel is supposed to do. More of the same and something wholly new and in a different direction. Absolutely. The third one is much more like the first one in theme. Um, but it was a great movie that does exactly what it's supposed to do. And the way they were able to do it, they did it with love. And it's required. In order to make this whole thing work, you needed to do that. And, and the way that movie had come around in the first place was very different from what ultimately wound up on the screen. I mean, he was going to go back to the 70s the first time, and his parents were going to be hippies. And, I mean, all of this was what was on the original script before they were, let's change it, guys. Let's revise it and make it different. And that's what they did. And they really went back to the first one. So you've got all this nostalgia. Back to the Future in 85 is one of the top grossing movies of that year, number one or number two. It's one of the top grossing movies of all time. The trilogy itself, one of the most respected and well-loved and well-loved trilogies. It's not because it threw in all this marketing mumbo-jumbo. It was so well done. The screenplay of the first one is looked at as maybe a perfect example of a script because the first 15 minutes is slow, but it's building up everything that's going to come after and everything, everything gets a payoff and it's perfect. And that trilogy is perfect. There's a reason that it is still revered to this day and The Matrix, eh, first movie was great. Everything after that, including the new one, eh, it's all built on nostalgia that just yeah. doesn't hold up. It's a house of cards. But if you don't build it right, it doesn't work. Back to the Future 2 and 3 are great examples of doing something more based on something that had already happened that is done extremely well. There's also risk involved when you are using nostalgia for your setting. Yes. Because movies that are trying to capture a time period sometimes get too overwhelmed and caught up in said time period to the point where it just kind of it takes away from from what's going on with the movie itself and and you lose sight of it because of all all of the glitz and glam of of whatever that that time period is in i mentioned that a little bit with death on the nile that it it kind of pushes the envelope on on that sort of idea with the setting that it's in i thought that movies that did that extremely well were X-Men First Class and X-Men Days of Future Past, yes. where you get a heavy dose of nostalgia with the fact that you are taking the X-Men and putting them into a time in the past, but it worked brilliantly. It worked great. It doesn't feel like you get overwhelmed by the time period you're in. It feels like the time period lends itself at a very, very level amount to the greater story here, which is what's going on with these characters and the development of the X-Men. I think First Class is a phenomenal movie, and that Days of Future Past is an excellent movie, too, in that it combines not only present with also that nostalgia of the past in the 70s when they drop in there, but First Class, putting that in the 60s, I mean, they they knocked that one out of the park with using the nostalgia and yet not 
letting that overwhelm what they're actually trying to accomplish. Well, even more to that point, the Cuban Missile Crisis was a real thing. But, you know, the way the movie presents it, it happened the way that it happened, not because of this and that, but that the, you know, these mutants were directly involved in putting missiles into Cuba and so on and so forth. So they were the power behind the power that made things happen. The story you didn't hear about the Cuban Missile Crisis was because blah, blah, blah. That's really smart. That's really intelligent. And it it, takes, it took the the X-Men concept and takes what people already knew about it from the movies that have been done in the 2000s, and it found a way to to drop that into that period of time in history and create a unique story out of it. I agree. I think that's a perfect example of if you're going to do something nostalgic, do that. And at that point, there was a degree of nostalgia for the X-Men. The original cast had kind of gone their way. They weren't going to go any further. They hadn't been around barely 10 years by the time First Class came around. But you get a whole new cast playing those established characters in a historical setting you get these characters that are already beloved with their backstories. You get actual historical events that had happened. And not that most people that were of that fan age knew about the Cuban Missile Crisis. That might have been the first time a lot of people ever even heard of it. But then hopefully, like me, well, is this real? Did this really happen? And they, oh, my, it really did happen. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's interesting the way that goes. I'll give you an example of, um, oh, my Lord, as I'm saying these very words, the thought I was just going to say is just getting pulled right Uh-oh. out of my head. Oh, anyway, I'm sure you have a thought while this one comes back to me. Well, not necessarily. I had I had gone the route of, of X-Men there talking about something where it worked. But the bottom line, I think, with nostalgia, I mean, we're not quite at the end here as I'm trying to b- buy some more time for you. The bottom line, though, I think with nostalgia is that it is... It is a tool. It's a tool that can be used in in the arsenal of putting together a really entertaining movie. And sometimes sometimes though some of these some of these movies get so caught up in their own world and trying to be nostalgic to their own world and calling back. I mean, that's where originality is is so so good and and so uh, I I appreciate it so much when there's originality because it's, it feels like sometimes when there's an original movie concept that comes along, we've talked about this with sequels, we've talked about this with franchises, we, this, this is not a new topic. It feels like the movies start to become so self-involved and caught up in their own world, and we're going to make callbacks to that first movie, and we're going we're gonna to get nostalgic for our own content, to where it's like, boy, you're, you're getting too caught up in yourself here to where part of the charm part of what it was appreciative about this movie was you did something new and fresh and unique in the first place maybe you should try to create something new and fresh and unique within the world of your own movie or maybe if it's a director it's like maybe you should create something new and unique and fresh that doesn't go automatically back to the cash cow of whatever that previous movie was. Part of what we appreciate is the fact that you have created something original, and you're not just trying to go back over and over again. But we love to go back as people. That's that's what nostalgia does. It allows you to go back. It allows you to appreciate. But you shouldn't do it so much to where you lose a sense of originality. Or trample all over what had come before. That too. So here's what I was going to talk about. And there's a lot of threads here. So feel free to grab a couple and pull. I read a quote actually not that long ago from Leonard Nimoy that says, don't be so concerned about what Star Trek showed you last week. Enjoy where Star Trek wants to take you this week. 
It's a great okay. quote. It's a good quote to a point. I I understand entirely the idea of you can't get all hung up on what came before. All right, but let's take a page from actual human history, not dramatic license. You can't just have the U.S. and the Russians be buddy, buddy, buddy today because they never really have been. You have to get take it from point A to B to C to so on and so forth. If they're going to become buddies, that's great, but you have to come up with a train of thought there. Where Star Trek is concerned, and I mean this as a whole, all the books, all the movies, all the shows, there is a huge tapestry with many, many strings. And in recent years, the last 10 years or so, they have finally come up with an interesting concept of this parallel Kelvinverse universe where there are similar things. Some elements are destined to land in each other's laps over and over, no matter which reality we're talking about. Uh, the Enterprise crew will come together with Kirk and Spock and blah, 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 in a different way, but similar things. However, you can't take huge liberties and change it to a point where it doesn't resemble itself anymore because then it's not Star Trek. One of the cool things about how complex the backstory is with Star Trek, even though it'll, it's going to put you into a box, in some ways, I think that's probably a good thing. Because just like human history, you can't go back and do a World War II movies while guys are running around with cell phones. They didn't exist back then. Now, if you're going to do some other kind of movie and it's time travel and they've come from now and they've made their way back in time and somehow cell phones would work, no cell towers required or whatever the case, fine. But you can't be serious about it. Now, where Tarantino comes in with, you know, Inglorious Bastards and where Hitler's concerned and his version of Tarantino history, which is not reflective of real history. All right, that's something else. But where Star Trek is going now is they've got these new shows that are coming out in the Prime Universe, not the Kelvin Universe, that look very, 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 very different from anything we've seen before in the Prime Universe. And not only that, they're going back to a well-established, well-trodden time from the established Prime Universe that doesn't resemble anything we've seen before. So they've got a brand new series called Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which takes place on the Enterprise just before Kirk took over. So you have Captain Christopher Pike. Spock is there. Uh, Magel Barrett's original character, number one, was the only thing she was known as, which is now played by Rebecca Romaine. And they had showed up in Star Trek Discovery. They're getting their own show. The Enterprise looked different. The uniforms looked different. And I get it. Those, mo- those shows were made over 50 years ago. They were cutting edge at the time. You can't make a show that's going to look like that today and expect to be taken seriously. I get it. So maybe the question should be, why keep going back to the well? You know, if World War II looked the way that it did, that's because that's the way that it looked. Yeah, but that's not how things look today. Yes, I know. That's why it's historical. You can't go back and do a historical show but make it look like today. Now, I know we're talking science fiction and you can do, it's a movie, Dave, it's a show, Dave. I got it. But one of the nice things about it is there is such a long level of history. Why mess with that? Now, if you want to go back and have Kirk and Spock and crew, didn't we just do that with the Kelvinverse movies? Why are we doing that again on a TV show basis that's not you know, making any liberty and saying, okay, we've opened up a third parallel universe now. Okay, you might, I know, you might wearily take that journey, but where I'm getting at is yeah, maybe we what? need to focus not on the nostalgia here, but at some point, we've done that. We need to move forward and do that. Now, they're doing that with Star Trek Discovery, whether you like it, whether you don't like to it. To boldly go where no show has gone before. Except several times before. 
you know, there's pros and there's cons and there's a lot to like and then there's a lot of criticisms that are there and I get it, I get it, I get it. But come on, you know, to me, it's lazy writing. And yeah, it's where no show has gone before is moving into the future. Yeah. It's not, like you said, going back. If you want to do a different version of, I want to go back and I want to see more, you know, of Kirk and his and Spock and their people. All right, I get it. You're not going to get Nimoy to play the role anymore because he's not around anymore. William Shatner, you know, is 90 and he's actually been to space now, which is cool. Yes. Um, but we got to come up with something creative if you're insistent on doing that. But I think the best way is to move forward. Look what the next generation did. They've just forwarded the clock 80 years. It's the same universe. Things have changed. Maybe we're not so friendly with these people are anymore. Maybe we're more friendly with the Klingons now. We'll see. But they just kind of forwarded the clock. We can start over. But everything that had happened before is still relevant. Rather than, let's fast forward by another 80 years. Let's go into the 25th century now. Yeah, but we're going to do this. We've always been buddies with the Klingons. Wait, wait, no, we haven't. What are you talking about? You know, yeah, but they've got, you know, this and this. If you're creative about things, you can make it work. But if you're just insistent on revisiting the past because it's nostalgic, but in a way that it doesn't work, then it's a problem. To me, it's, like I said, that analogy of doing a World War II movie, but with technology and things like you'd see today. Jet planes. There were a couple maybe back then, but not really. They were the exceptions. You know, you can't make a World War II movie with fighter jets dogfighting like Top Gun. It didn't work like that back then. You know, you got to stick with what has been established. Otherwise, what are we doing here? You're just making a big pile of mess. It's something cool to hype this week, but next week, you're just going to throw all that away and hype up the next thing. It's just, come on, guys. So you don't want to be so tied to the past, but sometimes you do. Sometimes you need to. Otherwise, you're just creating a big old pile of mess. And just for the sake of nostalgia, well, everyone knows these characters. We don't need to rebuild characters. Maybe you should. Dave, here's the truth, though. We are suckers for nostalgia. True. It, there's no question about it. We are suckers for nostalgia. We, we want a lot of it. But the problem is, what happens when you build a house of cards on nostalgia? How many people are going to rewatch it? How many people are rewatching original Star Trek shows, for example? Oh, a whole bunch, because it was done extremely well. And in most of those cases, with a great deal of care. And with nods back to nostalgia, in fact. I mean, for their 30th anniversary, Deep Space Nine was made in the mid-late 90s. They went back to an episode of the original series. Original sets, costumes, everything. It was awesome. It was such a nod to the past. And everything moving forward is kind of spun off of that. But... If you're building it just to be nostalgic and that's all you have, then you've got a hyped premiere and then what? Where are you going to go from that once people say, eh, it's just an attempted clone of something that was much better done before, move on, and nobody goes back. Now what have you done? And Dave, that's because there are so many of these these production studios that get caught up in target audiences, that get caught up in appeasements, that get caught up in... We want to be able to reach this particular set of of our audience here, and they don't know how to make a really good story. Then, as a result, it's exactly. all about it's all about checking off boxes of people who they want to be able to come in order to be able to make profit. Which I get, I get it. It, it that that's the way that it goes. You're trying to make a profit here on all of this, but you're also making something that's artistic too. You're you're making something that hopefully will will last and stand the test of time as well. 
you you got to throw out some of your market research at that point and maybe not totally dismiss it but you've got to be able to make something that's really good and really unique you need to make something that's going to stand on its own right here right now sure you've got some great nuggets from other areas you can't lean on nostalgia yeah, for that you, you have some of it depending on what you're doing sure fine but it has to stand on its own you can't We've talked about before where you're coming up with these, you know, you can really honestly create people and faces from the past and bringing things in. We talked a little bit about this before. Who's to say we're not going to have a movie that the entire cast are people that are no longer with us, but their characters are being recreated, whether it's through AI, whether it's through deep fakery, whatever the case, and not one living person that today stars in a brand new movie that's coming out next year, but they are the biggest names of all time. James Cagney and Jimmy Stewart in a brand new... That's a great gimmick, but what if it's all just hollow, 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 hollow? Who's going to see it again? Who's going to buy it on DVD? Who's going to want to stream it when it's on the whatever? You got a one-shot you know, nitro blast in the tank, and that's all you got. So if that's all you're going to build it on is nostalgia and nostalgia and uh, nostalgia, and that's it. No plot, no story, no nothing, just enough to make the nostalgia work. You don't have anything, nothing. So nostalgia is a great tool, but you're not just going to build a porch with a screwdriver. You need a lot more of other things. How are you going to cut the wood? Screwdriver's not going to do that for you. You need a different tool. You can't build it all on one thing. You need to make it work. And where nostalgia comes in, it's just one color of the whole rainbow, but you can't make, well, I suppose if you're really good, you could make an entire blue painting, I suppose, but different shades of blue. You need different tools to make things work. And nostalgia, if you use it too heavily and you use it wrong, it's like misusing the wrong color or too much of the color or whatever the case you got to have something that's going to work on its own structurally, engineering, um, electrical, you name it. All of it needs to be there and it needs to work or you got a big, big problem and you got a house that no one's going to want to buy and it's certainly going to have no resale value. But if you're only looking at that one thing and you got that one executive saying, man, this is all we're going to need. We got a killer box office opening weekend. Yeah. And then what? You know, build a great car that's going to break down in six months. What have you done? Nothing. But you're going to poison your product. You're going to poison your well. Who's going to be ready to see the next one? So when it comes to nostalgia, there's so many examples of it done poorly. And while, yeah, Ghostbusters Afterlife leans a lot on the first one, I think it does it in a good way. In a way, it's like a coming around full circle. And you need to have something that ties back to the original, not just the characters, but maybe some kind of a plot element that ties it all together. And I think... There's a definite argument to be made that it's one step too far, but I go the argument that it's a very fine tight wire, and it really, really is. And Olivia Wilde, uncredited as Gozer, the girl that comes in the end of the first one, the spiritual girl, she plays that role this time, uncredited, does a great job. And I think it walks that very fine tightline, or tight, uh, tight wire uh, razor thin, and it does it maybe without shedding no blood, just a little bit, but it makes it work. It really, really does. It's a fabulous movie. And if you love the first Ghostbusters, you'll love this new one. I think that's a great example of nostalgia done just right. Something needed to be put away. There was something unresolved that ties back. And I don't just mean with the first movie. I mean with the franchise. Something needed to be soothed. And it was. While moving forward. And it did. It did everything I think it needed to do without being a requel. It's a solid sequel that does tie back the way a sequel should. It's not a reboot, but in some ways it kind of is because it's clearly turning the corner into something new and leaving the door open for new. It's a great movie. 
Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the Bemidji Airport. Lots of nostalgia talk today. When it's done well, when it's not done well, why sometimes we get nostalgic about things that don't seem to be all that nostalgic. But nostalgia just has a way of of pulling on the heartstrings, though. It, regardless, uh, something from the past... Even if it's not necessarily something all that good, but who wants has to be nostalgic way. about that time you got punched in the face by Larry the Bully? You know, I I'll just skip that. Thank you oh, very much. Those were the days. I'll look fondly at Larry eating out of a dumpster behind the coffee shop because you know his life hasn't turned out the way that he well, bullied everyone into believing sad. it was going to be. That's very sad. But there's a ser- it was a weird perverse way of saying yeah, that's what you get for all the torture you put everybody through. I'm not giving you a muffin top. Heck with you. That's very sad. Sad. Yes. All right. <laughs> That's why we shouldn't have done some of that stuff. Maybe so. Anyway, have we been nostalgic enough? Are we going to look toward the future and 100 episodes next who? Let's do just that. Yeah, we are in progress of working on what the 100th episode is going to look like, but um, very much, let's not try to get too self-involved, okay? Let's not get too nostalgic who. Yeah, we'll celebrate it. We'll try not to get too self-involved, though, too. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies.